0: Beloved, that's exactly what the law does. It shows you that you cannot come before God on your own. That's why you need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Now as you know, we've been going through the book of Galatians. Now for some time, uh, there's been a couple of things that have happened uh, since the last time that we met, in Galatians that is, we've had a, we've had a few, uh, couple, a good couple weeks, full weeks with our uh, Palm Sunday, okay. and then Sunrise Service, right. Good Friday, right. so we had a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of things going on and so I, I just want to go back and kind of give us a review of what we've been talking about. And uh, you know that Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region, an area of all these churches. Churches that he planted and started. He was discipling a lot of these uh, the leaders there, teaching them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we needed to know. The, there were some people that came in and said, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is sufficient. However, in order for you to believe and be like Jesus Christ, you also have to be Jewish, in a sense. A lot of the people that were being converted into Christianity had not yet been converted into Judaism. And so what these, we called them Judaizers, wanted to do is get the congregations to start, go back to the law and start to apply the law back to themselves as far as the ceremonial Uh, traditions, the circumcision, the the festivals, and and the celebration of all those things. Now, we celebrated Passover here a couple of weeks ago, not because we wanted to be Jewish or because it's something that the law has commanded us to do. We do that in order to see how Jesus Christ fits in every one of those elements of the Seder plate. If you were to take a really good look At all the other celebrations and festivals you will see that Jesus Christ fits every one of them. However, we're not going to celebrate all the other ones because we are focused more on the Word of God than anything else. And so what Paul has been doing is he's building up a, this defense, first of all, of who he is. He's an apostle appointed by Jesus Christ. And he says, if there's any other gospel that comes to you, whoever it is, whether it be an angel, whether it be himself or another apostle, he says that person needs to be cursed. You cannot accept another gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace and grace alone. We don't deserve it. We, what we deserve is a lot worse. What we deserve is to be annihilated because we have offended a holy God. But what, what God did is He provided for us a perfect sacrifice. And this sacrifice that He continuously talks about throughout uh, Galatians, He's talking about how it is that we are saved. And in chapter 3, where we left off last, uh, last time we were in Galatians, he says to them in verse 1, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In essence, what happened was that these Judaizers were coming in and saying, Okay, well, that makes sense. It makes sense that we should go back to the Torah and become Jews in a sense. And so there were some, apparently, that were following along this type of teaching. And so Paul comes in and says, you know, being bewitched or it's like if somebody has just pulled the wool over your eyes and and you're following that, which I had already taught you. It is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ only. And that's it. Nothing else. You cannot add any more to that. And so we come to a place right now in verses 15 and on after he says, well, we talked about this the last time. The righteous shall live by faith for all who rely on the works of the law, and I'm in verse 10 right now, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In essence, he's saying you have to obey the whole law. In order to obey the whole law, you have to follow every one of them because if you mess up in one, just one, then you've messed up in all of them. And so Paul is saying it's virtually impossible to do this and so as he's talking about the righteousness, though the righteous shall live by faith, he, he, he goes back and he takes us to Abraham. You see, Abraham, 450 years before the law was given, Abraham, it was counted on him. It was imputed upon him. It was, it was given to him faith and given to him the, the salvation that only comes through faith. And because of his obedience... And because of his faith, you see that Abraham, the the forerunner, the founder uh, of the Jewish people, he was given this righteousness because of faith, because of what he did, because of how he believed. And so he takes us back to Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to go back there again today, just to kind of brush up a little bit. But he takes us back there, and and God gave him a promise, and that promise was put into place. And that promise, when the law came, was still in place. What started to happen here is that these Judaizers started to ask, okay, so if, if that's the case, if the, if, if the promise is what makes us righteous when we believe in faith, then why did God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? Why is the law even there? Which is a very good question. And I think I've gotten some kind of a, some question, something similar to that. What's the purpose? What's the big deal? Why all of this? Why do we do this? Why are we even here today? Why is it that we come and we worship? If God's going to save, who He's going to save? He's going to take those that have already committed their life and and are part of the kingdom of God and take them to heaven. So why the rest of it? Why all of this, in a sense, is what the people were somewhat asking according to how Paul was responding. So what I want to do right now is I want to go back to verse 15. That's where we're going to be starting off and read from there to verse 22. And look at and understand and see, okay, first of all, what God did, the promises that God gave us, and if the promises are true, then why the law? But here's what Paul says, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, chapter 3, verse 15, and it goes like this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should, become, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this portion of scripture. We were imprisoned. We did have chains. We were in a tomb, and we were dead, dead, dead to our sin. And the law has showed us that. And the law continues to show the evilness in man's life. But it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's because of what he did, the promise that you gave Abraham is the promise that we have today, that it is by faith that we're saved through your grace and your grace alone. So Father, as we walk through this passage of scripture, Amen. teach us, Lord, lead us and help us to see the intent of the law and why grace is so important and sufficient. Because your grace is enough, we pray. In Jesus name, and everyone says, Amen. Amen. The Old Testament Abraham was justified by faith, not by the law. There was no law at that time, and it was counted to him. But in, in Genesis chapter 15, we're going to go back there right now. God granted that Abraham and those prior to Moses were saved by faith. It is an obvious uh, law that God gave later, but not at that time. There was no law. And so when Abraham followed and listened, he listened to what God was teaching and sharing with him. Today we have the Word of God, and it talks to us about what it means to live by faith. And so the answer to the question as to why the law is Paul's going to explain that, and he's going to develop it here in just a little bit. But really, to Abraham, he says, I will bless you. I will show you. I will save you. I will give you this and I will give you the promised land. And now through Moses, through Moses, he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt. The the promise is from God's behalf upon his people where the law is on man's behalf, the things that we have to do. The law was given so that we can have We can have the, the law of God on what we should be doing, but God says, I have promised you the salvation for those who believe. So the promises center on God's plan and God's grace, God's initiative, God's sovereignty and God's blessing. The law centers on man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility, man's behavior, man's obedience. And so that's how these two things work together. So the first reason, or the first thing that we see in the first verse of 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Number one, God's promises of the promises of God are forever. Once God makes a promise, it is done. And so what Paul does is he says, let me show you how it is that we conduct business in our world. This is, these are the things that we do in a man-made situation. Even human beings hold their covenants. And when you, when you sign a contract, and if you signed any kind of contract, uh, whether you buy a car, whether you buy a home, or whatever it is that you sign up for, that contract cannot be violated and it cannot be broken or annulled or, or anything. It cannot be mixed up or changed without the written consent of the one who made the contract. Once it's made, it's made. And so this is what Paul is trying to argue. This covenant, this promise has already been made, and it's already been made by God Himself. And a covenant always involves two or more people or two or more parties. And uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament, there was always somebody else involved. But this contract that God made with Abraham is amongst Himself and Abraham. And He made it just for them. Let me ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. Verse 1. And in your outline, you have the first verse. While we do this, catch my breath here a little bit. In chapter 15, it says this After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. Actually, his name is Abram at this time. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great, very great. But Abram said to the Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness was counted to Abraham, not by any law, not by any sacrificial animal, not by anything except for the fact that Abraham in his heart and God knows the heart of man believed God with all his heart. He says, "Okay, Lord, I see the stars and I've tried counting them. And it's difficult to count them as they start to appear one by one and you lose count quickly. And if that's what you promised me, Lord, I believe. I believe and I'm going to hold on to that. Yet even in our belief, sometimes our disbelief seems to kick in. There are things that seem impossible to man. But the point is, is that whatever seems impossible to man is possible with God. If God promised you salvation, if God has given you eternal life, if he has given you the life that is going to spend eternity with him for all eternity, that is yours. Now, we have to really focus on that because we live. The world where people say they are saved and people believe they are Christians, yet they live like the world. And it's it's amazing on how many people live very anxious and worried. And I'm talking about Christians, and in and, and disbelief that God is actually going to take care of them. And I think what happens is we get this confused that God is going to take care of us because we've been good. Or God is going to take care of us because the the places that we go to are good. And God is going to give us the desires of our heart, everything that we want. And when those things don't come to fruition, then the faith starts to falter. And sometimes I believe that things happen in our life because God is testing our faith. You've heard the expression, why do bad things happen to good people? when we were going through the book of Romans in Romans chapter 3, I turned that around. I said, well, to be honest with you, that's not the way it works. Because the question should be asked, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all bad. None of us are righteous. None of us are good. And so when we start off with the bad premise, I'm a good person. And so therefore, God owes me My righteousness or my blessing. I'm a good person, therefore, God, I demand for you to give me what I want. I'm a good person, therefore, God, I should not be going through this mess. And when God was asked, excuse me, when Jesus Christ was asked about the beggar, the blind man at the temple, they asked Jesus, well, who sinned, Jesus? Was it this man or his parents? Is the thought of the day even today? We believe that bad things happen because you're bad. Or somebody was bad. You did something wrong. And only the good people or God's people are the ones that get all the blessings. Now, please understand, the blessings are not always physical, financial, material. But God, God does bless. He does. In spite of all those things. I've heard stories upon stories. Uh, just, just yesterday, we I, I found out that there was a volcano eruption in a place that we went to go do a missionary work. In a place called the Vincent Islands, in the Caribbean Islands. And uh, St. Vincent uh, Island is, uh, is a, uh, a place where one of my mentors, Don Overstreet, ta- had taken us to. We met the people there. They were so in love with God. They were so in love with Jesus Christ. They loved and appreciated Pastor Don for what he did and how he planted churches. They built the seminary and they named it the Don Overstreet Seminary. People there are so in love with God and yet there is this volcano raining down on this small island that people are fleeing. And the question seems to be asking, so God, what happened? I thought we were good. And the fact of the matter is is that, that it's not a matter of who we are, it's a matter of who God is. And our righteousness is going to come to fruition when we come to face God in heaven. That's when it's all going to just be shown to us. What we have here on this earth is, is just the additional blessings, and we should be able to say something to the effect of, you know, God, if you blessed me no more, if you brought me just this far, dayanu. Remember that word, dayanu. If that, this is as far as you're going to take me, that would be sufficient. But you saved me, but and that should be sufficient. If you were to save me and gave me nothing else, that Is sufficient. And so we have to understand that for God and Abraham and the covenant that he made, God says to him, You know what? I'm going to promise you this. And Abraham says, That's sufficient enough. You've blessed me with servants. You've blessed me with cattle. You've blessed me with so much. And now you're going to give me children. But you know the story. Abraham couldn't wait. He says, You know, my biological clock is ticking and my wife's biological clock is ticking. So let's. take it upon ourselves and and maybe God will bless that and we'll ask God to bless what we are doing instead of God we want to you bless what I'm, I'm doing I'm gonna do this and you're gonna bless this God and we go forward and it falls apart let me give you the rest of this story In verse 7, he says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so here it is. This is a very common covenant-making tradition in ancient times. They would take these animals, they would cut them in half, and they would both walk through it with the blood being the seal of the covenant. That's how it was done. So God says to Abraham, let's you and I do this. This is what I want you to do. But nothing happened. As a matter of fact, in verse 12 it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be, a, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father's in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Ammonites is not yet complete. Let let me pause there for just a moment. You know, God is saying the iniquity of the Ammonites. The Ammonites lived in the Promised Land. The Promised Land hasn't even been uh, populated yet. Israel hasn't even been born the 12 tribes haven't even been uh, 12 sons haven't even been been born yet yet in in the in the land of Canaan the Ammonites were just causing this atrocity they would not listen to God they sacrificed their children they hated God they worshiped other gods so God was going to deal with them and for 450 years this took place in the promise one of the questions that comes up when people are talking about the Old Testament? One of the things that comes up is it says, why did God kill everyone? Men, women, and children. That's just a heartless God. you got to understand that there was a lot of stuff going on that God had sent people. I'm sure we don't have record of it. God had spoke to these people. Most of these people understood who God was, but they chose to go their own way. As a matter of fact, as the Old Testament unfolds in the book of Joshua, Every nation is being conquered in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the, Jew, the Israelites, they sinned. They brought up a judge and they conquered and they sinned again. Worse than the last time before. It's just the process that human nature does. Leave us to our own devices. Leave us to ourselves. We are such, uh, we're totally depraved. We're totally depraved, evil individuals, if we're not connected to God on a daily basis. And this is the history the history of mankind. And verse 17 says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is what took place. The promise was sealed and it was sealed between God and between Abraham. So what Paul is saying, when we go back to uh, Galatians Chapter 3. Well, Paul is saying to give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. It's done. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offspring. Look at look at number two. The promises of God stand the test of time because they are Christ-centered. Because they are Christ-centered. They are forever. God does not violate His promise. God does not change His promise. God will never, ever permit anyone to change the covenant. Paul argues, as he's going through here, that it's Christ-centered. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who inspired the writings both of Genesis and Galatians, Paul exegetes the quoted Genesis passage. Now, let me just share with you a a term that is used in the uh, scholarly field as far as when you're doing work with uh, any kind of ancient writing, especially the Bible. When you exegete, it's it's a Greek word, means to lead out of. When you exegete, you take a scripture and you take out of it what it says. You take out of it what it says, not by the verse itself, but through the whole process of the studying the whole chapter, the background, who he's writing to. This is why I continuously come back and share with you who Paul is writing to. This is why I come back and always recognize that Paul is not just writing to one person. It's not just this one verse that we're going to focus on. We want to take that verse, that passage, the chapter, the book, and we want to exegete it, take out of it as it leads out to what Paul is trying to say. And how he's trying to say this to the people. And so what, what, when you do this, this is very sound and uh, very uh, ve- very good theological practice. When you take out what the word says. Now there's another term that some people use and it's called eisegesis. Eisegesis is to lead into the scripture. Lead into the passage. Where you come with this preconceived idea, this thought, this un- understanding of what you wanted to say. Now I, I'm, I've been... Uh, I, I've been very convicted of that myself, and I've fallen to that that practice myself. I would prepare a message, and I would say, okay, well, these are the, the topics that I want to talk about. I want to talk about family of children and anger or whatever the case may be. And then I'd search the whole Bible to find verses that fit my pattern. Sometimes, well, most of the times, you know, they, they fit. They were there. But a lot of times, I have to make it kind of fit. I would even use a different translation because it really makes it work. See, when you do eisegesis, you're going totally against what God wants you to know. You are giving your interpretation as if you know what's best and God doesn't understand. Or maybe you know better than God. I don't know. The, The careful student that wants to get out of God's word, what he needs to get out, he'll do an exegesis. And, and, I, and this is what Paul did here. He goes back to the book of Genesis, and he exegetes that offspring. In some of your translations, it'll say a seed. And the seed is the, uh, in Greek, it's sperma, and, and in Hebrew, it's zera, I believe. But it, it has the same connotation, that it is the developing one singular. Or it could be used plural as well, because seed can be plural. But Paul says, he's talking about Jesus Christ, now, when you read that in the Old Testament, you really don't see it, but Paul, under the supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that this is what Paul is ta- God is talking about, talking about Jesus Christ. And so what he says, the term offspring or seed is declared in Genesis 22 where it says it was therefore not referring to many, but to one, which is the offspring, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul could... Paul could start to work with that, and he says, "You know, this is this is what God is doing." As a matter of fact, one of the places where we see this word offspring being used in relation to Jesus Christ or the seed is in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen, and it says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Many of you that have heard this uh, this verse, when when um, And right after the fall of man and the woman believed the serpent and gave to the husband and they ate of the fruit. And and God came and pronounced these curses on man, woman and and beast and the animal. And he said to the serpent that your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In essence, you might crucify him and you might think you've won, but he's going to come up and he's going to squash your head. Because he will be the victor. And so as Paul is talking about this, the one and only heir of every promise of God is Christ. Every single time, every promise given in the covenant with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ. Therefore, the only way to a person can participate in the promised blessing to Abraham is to be a fellow heir with Christ through faith in him. Only through the perfect offering of Christ on the cross. Believers who lived before the cross are saved. Those that live after the cross are saved. Believers prior to the cross would look to the future, to the cross, and the people that now, us, we look back to the cross for salvation. It has always been by the cross. As we mentioned here a couple of weeks ago, that the gospel message was proclaimed to Abraham, Abraham and to Moses, and and Jesus Christ, as He's talking to the two men on the way to Emmaus, they point, Jesus points back and says, look, Every single place where the Messiah and the things that he had to go through, the gospel message was being proclaimed. And it's always been by the cross of Jesus Christ. And and the third thing that we need to understand about this is that God's promises are timeless. Number three, God's promises are timeless. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. The promises that were given 430 years afterward, the, the, after, the, after the, the promise, was the law. And when the law came into effect, it does not mean that the promise is gone. All promises of God are forever. Because the covenant with Abraham was permanent, unbroken. No amount of time could make the promise void. Time does not nullify or modify the covenant of God. doesn't matter how long it takes. Many of you are waiting for a promise you know that there is a promise that God has given you. As a matter of fact, the only promise that we have to wait for right now is the promise of Jesus Christ's return. That's to exegete what the passage says. Now, you want to uh, eisegeist some things in there. Well, you promised me, God, that my whole household would be saved. You promised me that I would be blessed beyond measure. You know, we want to eisegeist and put stuff into the Word of God. The only promise that we have right now is that Jesus Christ is returning. And that he will see you through to the end. He will be with you. There are times when you don't believe that he's there. There are times that things have happened in your life that you can't, I just, God, you've left me. But God, if he's promised you that he's going to be with you, he'll he'll be with you to the end of the age, he is there. Can I get an amen? Thank you, brother. I need to get one from you. All right. The promises of, okay, there's a typo there. The promises of God, please add of, uh, promises, you know, we, we, we put these typos in there every once in a while. We try to make everybody happy. You know, we, we put these things in there just for those that like to look for typos. I like to look for typos. So that was put there for me. The, the promises of God are complete. The promises of God are complete. Verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Yeah. He gave it to Abraham by a promise. Yeah. And because he gave it to Abraham by a promise, it is complete. It is done. It is, you don't have to work for it. Paul's point is that inheritance, you know, based on the law, by definition, is something that you receive. Yeah. It's not something that you work for. You can't negotiate for it. You know, if, if you get an inheritance, it is yours. And whereas the, the, the one who gave to Abraham by means of a promise, it depends on God's power. The, the inheritance is based on law, based upon, and it depends on man's performance. That's the inheritance. But the promise of Abraham depends on God's power, the sustaining power. He gave him. He gave him this promise. Once again, it's not something that we work for. Man cannot succeed. He could not in keeping the perfect law. He tried to do everything he could. And he added law upon law, tradition upon tradition to keep the law as much as possible. And God cannot fail in perfectly keeping his promise. Man cannot cannot complete the law and God cannot fail in keeping his promise. And so the question that's rhetorically asked and uh, possibly was asked of Paul, because again, he's responding to what these people in Galatia are saying, then why did we even have the law? Wasn't the law put into place ahead of time and afterward because it now replaces what God had said as a promise? Isn't that the law now? This is what we should be doing because the law is perfect, and that's what we should be striving for. And so, The the history of people have been to follow the law, the letter of the law, as best they could. And so what Paul says, he says, okay, well, let me show you. There's some things that you need to know as to why the law was given. First of all, salvation has always been by faith and never by works. And if the covenant promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, what purpose did the law have? Well, the purpose of the law was this. The law was given to demonstrate to man his total sinfulness. To demonstrate to man his total sinfulness. The law was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 I've heard some very godly people say that if they would lose the whole Bible and they could hold on to just one passage, this would be it. Because in this passage stands the whole salvation of humanity. All have sinned. They've all, we've all have fallen. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The question needs to be asked, then why don't we tremble? Why, don't we, why aren't we afraid? Why don't we know how terrible this is? We don't know how much we have sinned in the same way that a fish doesn't know on how wet it is. We were born in sin. We were conceived in sin. We we live in a world of sin. Sin is just so abounding in us. The Bible says in Job chapter 15 that if God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water. You see, there's something that we need to understand. That all these atrocities that are going on in our world today, The most recent was the one I read about yesterday of a mother that butchered three of her children's, three, two, and six months old in Residio. In Southern California here, this woman just, for whatever reason, it filled her heart with anger and rage to do this to her children. You know, Hitler was not an anomaly. Hitler is every one of us. And even Hitler was constrained and controlled by the common grace of God. Every one of us have the potential to be twice or even make Hitler look like a choir boy or this young lady look like a saint. Because we have that potential within us. Yeah. See, we don't understand that, that what Scripture teaches about men is that we're evil. Yeah. Uh, you may say, I don't agree. And it's okay because you, you have probably you've grabbed enough Christianity to stand, but you don't believe the Bible. You've come to a place where you understand, okay, well, you know, man is basically good. We just make bad choices. Okay. Really? Okay. Do you have to teach a child to lie? Okay. Do you have to teach a child to be self-centered? Okay. Do you have to teach a child to be brutal to other children? Okay. Do you have to teach a child to take things that don't belong to them? No. They learn that on their own. Set them free, discipline them not, and they become little monsters. Our children are primed to receive the output of what this society is teaching them. Okay. Scripture is true. And, if, and, and, and you can say, you know, I, I don't believe it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm not a sinner. My, especially my kids. My kids are saints. How many of you guys want to raise your hand on that one? Yeah. Yeah. My kids could not do something like that. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It's kind of like a, the person is being given the news of cancer. And in denial, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. And you yes. block yourself off yes. to the remedy of what God has for, you, for us, each one of us. We all have that potential. Yes. Why is sin so terrible? Because it is committed against the holy God. Yeah. We, we don't tremble because we don't know what that means. Yeah. Why don't we know what that means? Because we don't know who God is. And why don't we know who God is? It's because, well, we're not sharing the holiness of God, the beauty of God, the purity of God. And we've, we've seen in the past on how Isaiah, he, he recognizes that God's presence is there. What was me? For I am undone. I am coming unraveled. I'm falling apart. I am dead. Yeah. And we recognize that Peter even himself says, depart from me for I am a sinful person. When he saw the beauty of God emanating from Jesus Christ. Yeah. We don't tremble anymore because we don't sense and see. Imagine for a moment. That God stands there at all at the beginning of creation. He tells the planets to line themselves in a way to orbit the Earth, and the Sun, and he, and he and he and he takes and he tells them, "This is where I want you to be at this axis at this level." And the planets they bow down and they obey and they say, "Amen." Imagine God as He flings the stars into the skies and they, they start to speckle and He says, I want you to position yourself in certain areas because of the, these stars, mankind will be able to use these stars to direct themselves to the places of God. And the stars, they obey and they listen and they say, Amen. Imagine God at the beginning of creation tells the mountains to rise up and the valleys to lower down, the seas to only come up to so far, and they obey and they say, Amen. And then he tells you, come. You say, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to try to figure this out by myself. Put myself up on my bootstraps, God, because you don't have my best interest in heart. How wicked and evil are we, beloved? You see, we're always getting one side of the story. Yeah about the love of God, the the grace of God, the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, how much you matter to God. We get that side of the story and very little do we hear about the holiness of God. It's hard to see because of the brightness of God. Our sin is so hidden because we are in this bright place in our minds that thinking that God loves me just the way I am. He loves me just like this and I don't have to change. It's kind of like, Looking at the stars, if we were to go outside right now and look up at the stars, where are the stars? You know, did somebody come by and take them away? Did he put them in a basket and walk away with them? You can't see the stars because of the brightness of the sun. The only way that you can see the grace of God's brightness is by the, the background of the pitch dark black sin. We have to see sin for what it is in the same way. That's God's grace. When He when He when He comes to you, His love with so much light. You know, and, and we have to understand that it is in that darkness and that vileness and that wickedness that man is that God sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate to man his total sinfulness. His inability to please God by his own words and, and his need for the grace of God. The law was added, the, Paul says, to show the depths of man's transgression. That's why the law is there. The law is there to show us we need a Savior. It was given to drive us to a desperate awareness, a, a, a desperate guilt and an awareness of his need for deliverance. The law was given to us so that we can say like Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? As the apostle explains a few verses later in Galatians chapter 3, For So then the law was given as our guardian until Christ came in, order that we might be justified by faith. The impossible demands of the law are meant to compel us to recognize our sinfulness our violation of God's standard, our violation of a holy God, our offense. When a man looks at the law, he sees that his living is more than simply wrong. It's not just bad choices. It is sin. It's an offense against the holy God before whom no sinful person can stand. The law shows men their violation of the will of God who rules the universe and holds them accountable for their sin. See, grace Grace is meaningless to a person who feels no inadequacy or need of help. It's meaningless. He sees no purpose in being saved if he does not realize that he's lost. And the the, the point is is that there are a lot of people that think, well, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm all right. I mean, I mess up a little bit. But man does not recognize his sinfulness. He sees no need for forgiveness by God if he does not know that he has offended God. You know, I, I, I'll offend everybody else. And, and I mean, I won't offend everybody else, but I'll offend God. He sees no need for, to seek God's mercy if he is unaware that he is under God's wrath. So the purpose of the law was to give us that, to show us our sinfulness. It's a mirror showing us we need a deliverer. That's point number two says. When Paul says in verses 19 through 20, the law was given to direct believers to Jesus. The law was given to direct people to Jesus. It's the believer that comes to know who Jesus Christ is through the law. Look what he says in verses 19 and 20. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. It was put in place. Through angels, by an intermediary. It was angels that talked to Moses. It was angels that brought it to the prophets. It was angels that, that the messengers of God, that gave the law to people. Abraham, by the way, he gave it to him face to face. See, he gave Abraham, saving faith, the promise face to face. In the same way, he wants to give you that same promise face to face. Not by an, an angel, not by another messenger, not by anything else. He wants to bring you to that place yeah. where you can recognize your sinfulness. In, in Acts seven fifty three, 53, uh, actually 52 and on, it says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, the angels and did not keep it. In Hebrews chapter two, verse two, he says, "For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, the message was delivered by angels." And this is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, "You know, this message was given to you, but it is now given as a promise. It is a promise." And uh, as Paul seems to be pointing out, that an intermediary, literally one who stands between two parties, is needed only when more than one is involved. God gave the covenant directly to Abraham without an intermediary because he was the only one. This is the part where in some translations it'll say he is a school teacher or a a taskmaster. Jesus Christ is the one to interpret and to give us the promise of God himself. And the only requirement that was given, the only requirement that was given to the people of Israel is just to obey. In Deuteronomy 5.33 says you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. The law was put into place to show us that we can't put it into practice. And what God did is He gave us, well He gave them, the sacrificial system to be able to atone for their sin on a regular basis. And people were constantly coming to the priests, atoning for their sin, and given of the sacrifice, once a year the scapegoat, once once a year the, the Passover lamb, to recognize that we cannot keep this law. And there were turtle doves, and there were pigeons, and there were all, all these clean animals that were given in lieu of the sacrificial lamb that came to be Jesus Christ. Number three, the law was given to deliver grace to believers. See, here's the promise, beloved. When you recognize the wickedness of man's heart, when you recognize who we are, when you recognize where you stand before God, God says, okay, I have the remedy, it's grace. All you have to do is understand that, all you have to do is live in that grace, all you have to do is commit your total life to Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we've said many times before, we cannot keep the total commandments. We can't even keep the greatest commandment, the one commandment. God said, all you have to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Yeah. Love God with everything that you have, and that's the greatest commandment. Amen. And like some of you, well, all of us, we cannot keep that one commandment, as simple as it is. My mind tends to wander, and I'm not thinking about. I'm not thinking about bad things. Not saying that. Sometimes I think about my grandchildren, you know, and and I'm thinking about them. Sometimes I think about my wife. Sometimes I think about the well, the football game that's going to come up, you know, or or just the just the things that. And when you do that, the Bible says you're not loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and mind. You do not love him with everything. So true. Is the law then contrary to God's promises? And He says no. Of course not. Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Yeah. yeah. You, you see, if it could be done, and, it could, and he says, no, you don't need a law for that. In other words, the law was inferior because it could not save. It was not able to give life. If it could have done so, it would have been against and contrary to the promises of God. Because it would have provided an alternate alternate and conflicting way of salvation. It would have created something more on top of what God has already promised. It would have made the death of Christ tragically unnecessary. And as we said here a few weeks ago, I did not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can get myself to heaven, if I can just be good enough, if I can just go to church enough and do enough stuff, then I should be able to make it to heaven. If that would be the case, then Jesus Christ died on the cross for nothing. God's grace, Christ's sacrifice, man's faith, all of that would be for nothing. But, as the Bible says, the Scripture, through the law, imprisoned everything under sin. Everything, all that we are, all that we have, imprisoned. We were in a tomb. We had chains. We were shackled down by this sin. The, the imprisonment, that we were, we were enclosed on all sides with no way of escaping, like the, the mummy in a tomb, like Lazarus. When he called your name, you came out because he unshackled you. He unwrapped you. He revealed to you the grace of God, and you came storming out. I came out of that grave. What an appropriate song, brother. Not until a person smashes himself against the perfect law of God. And, and the accusations and the consciousness and, and does he not realize the helplessness and see the need for a savior? We cannot see that until we see our wickedness, our vileness. You know, I've heard many people say I can't go to church. I go, why not? Well, the moment I walk in there, the building's gonna fall on me. I don't know if you've heard that one before. If I walk in there, the you know, lightning bolt's going to strike down and all kinds of stuff. You know, I can't go to church. I'm not perfect. I can't go to church. I'm a sinner. I can't go to church because everybody's going to look at me. I can't go to church because, and you fill in the blank. Beloved, that's exactly what the law does. Yes. Yes. It shows you that you cannot yes. come before God on your own. Yeah. That's why you need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's why we need that. The law was given to bring men under sin to the point of saying, like Paul says in Romans seven twenty four, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man. I am wretched. You'll hear me, you'll hear me say that often. And, and, and I, I mean it with all my, everything that I am, that I am vile. I am wicked, sinner, saved by grace, yeah. only by the grace of God. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? Amen. Of whom I am the foremost sinner. Amen. Paul says, I'm the worst. But you're a pastor. I'm the worst. But you've planted churches. I'm the worst. But you preach the word of God. I am the worst. I put myself above no man. I put myself above no one because I am the worst. Amen. But then Paul says in verse 25 of chapter 7, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, this is why Jesus Christ came into the world. Yes. He said himself, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. Yes, he did. My response is, to that recognizing my wretchedness is just a surrender. Surrender to what God Himself has put into place. Everything else obeys God, all creation obeys Him. Everything grows and goes as it as, as God has ordained it. Animals migrate south and come back in the summer. Everything happens exactly the way God has put it into place. Everything follows God's plan. Everything follows God's or- ordained purpose, except for one. That's you and I. And we tend to think that we can do this on our own. Paul is making the argument, well, you don't need the law. But the law is there because we need the law. You don't need the law to follow the law for salvation. That has been taken care of. It's the law that is showing you who you are. Yes. Not so you can follow it, yes. because you can't. And even if you could, even if you can say, look, I did all the law. I'm complete. Even if you were to do that, you would violate the law by expressing it out in pride and in arrogance. Paul continues to show us even more as we continue to go through this in verses 23 and on. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We were held under that law, as we talked about here just a bit ago. And what God does is He reveals that to us. He shows us the grace. We respond in faith. And God says, you have been given righteousness. You have been made right in the eyes of God. However, it is difficult. We tell people, come to church. Life will be good. Everything will fall into place. You know, come to church. Everything will happen just the way you want it to. Come to church and be happy. Because God wants you to be happy. Come to church and and just enjoy the the greatness of God. And it's hard for us to see the holiness of God when we don't see the darkness of our sin. And I believe that that's one element that is missing from the gospel presentation. People have to know that they, they are lost, that they need to be saved. But lostness is eliminated sometimes. It's more what God can do for you. Which is true. But to see that, you have to see where we are, where we stand. Let me ask you to stand. Father in heaven, we we know that we stand before a holy God. And our offense, as wicked as it is, you have forgiven. You have forgiven those that have placed their faith in your son Jesus Christ for what he has done on the cross. And it is our faith, your faith, that you've given us to have uh, that belief in Jesus Christ that has given us right standing with you. And so, Lord, I pray that every person within the sound of my voice can understand and see, yes, we are all wicked. And I pray, Father, that you just help us to see that. As I've been told many times before, I can't go to church. That's exactly why we need to be there. We need to draw near to you. And if that means to draw near where others are drawing near, Lord, that that would help us. That would show us. So I pray, Lord, that your word continues to, to penetrate the hearts, the hardened hearts, those that have already decided that they have taken care of everything. Lord, help us not live in an illusion or in a delusion. We know the time is short. And we need to continue to proclaim your word. Amen. So, Father, this, this morning as we leave this place and we spend the afternoon with friends and family, you, I pray that your word just resonates within us. You, Help us, God, to, to see where it is that we stand and where it is that we're going to go. Thank you once again for this faithful few. Thank you for your love and, your, uh, and just what you do, Lord. We know that you are a great and awesome and doing some great and mighty things here. Yes. We pray that you continue to lead us with our friends and family in all that we do we pray in Jesus' name and everyone says amen. 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 Brother, would you dismiss us in the blessing? Amen.